free speech has its harms and costs, but historically, the benefits have far outweighed the harms and costs. And that, you know, when you undermine free speech, you ultimately undermine uh, democracies. And so it's your goddamn duty to stand up for those principles, even if they're sometimes being used by people who are against democracy. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Lady Ataos, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Julia Ahn. On August 12, 2022, novelist Salman Rushdie was almost fatally stabbed nearly 30 years after the Iranian Supreme Leader issued a fatwa, placing a several million dollar bounty on the novelist's life. This attack has shined a spotlight onto the state of free speech worldwide. How have states cracked down on free speech? And in an increasingly digitized world, how has the internet changed access to free speech? Mr. Jacob Mishangama joins us to discuss the current state of free speech and censorship. Jacob Mishangama is the founder and CEO of Justitia, a Danish think tank focusing on human rights, freedom of expression, and the rule of law. He is also the executive director of the Future of Free Speech project in collaboration with the Global Freedom of Expression Center at Columbia University, where he was also previously a visiting scholar. He is also the author of the 2022 book, Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right, we wanted to begin our conversation on state censorship with the attack on Salman Rushdie. Could you give us some context on who Salman Rushdie was? Yeah, well, Salman Rushdie, of course, was a, is a, a great British Indian uh, author, uh, award-winning uh, author who in 1988 published The Satanic Verses, um, which includes a number of, of passages that could be seen as uh, an attack or satirizing or mocking the, the, the Muslim prophet Muhammad, along with, with many other things. It's, it's, it's actually quite a fascinating, but also very difficult work to, to read, at least for a lawyer like me. I don't have the imagination and fantasy that Salman Rushdie uh, has. Um, and, um, and, and that led initially to uh, protests uh, in, around the world and then a fatwa by uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran, uh, which said that all Muslims uh, had a duty basically to, to kill Rushdie uh, as well as anyone that had been sort of involved in publishing or editing uh, the work. Um, and for a long time, Rushdie had to 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 um, live in hiding. Um, but then, uh, for f- he's been living in New York, um, and and without, I think, a lot of uh, security measures. And then, uh, hor- horrifically, li- uh, recently, he was uh, attacked uh, by uh, an assailant with with, with a knife. But uh, he's certainly not the only one who has been attacked or even killed. As part of the whole Rushdie affair, it has left a long and bloody trail uh, from the from the point of publication and up until and including today, unfortunately. Yeah, and could you tell us um, how much of this whole Rushdie affair is attributable to the Iranian government and that fatwa? Uh, I think it's difficult to um, I think it's difficult to unpack because there were. Even before the fatwa, there were uh, deadly protests in Pakistan, for instance. There were um, there were death threats and firebombings in uh, in, um, in in the UK. But I don't. Th- uh, I think uh, it certainly made things worse. 
um, the, uh, the 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 fact where it gave heightened attention to to the whole affair, um, uh, and so and, and the fact that you very likely also had state agents who were were sent out by the Iranian state to uh, to kill editors and, and Rushdie, of course. Um, heightened the threat. Uh, so, so I don't think there's any doubt that the, the fatwa played a, a, a crucial role in, uh, in, in the blood and, and, and terror and violence that was unleashed. Uh, but, but I think there would also have been, and there, were, there was, bloodshed even before the fatwa was, was issued. Yeah. And so what has been the response from the U.S. and just the broader international community to this attack, these attacks? Well, uh, I think that has differed a bit uh, over time. Um, um, So um, I think a lot of um, authors were very sympathetic in the beginning uh, towards Rushdie showed him solidarity. But there were also voices even within the West who said that this uh, book was uh, was ill-advised and that it was uh, sort of uh, deeply offensive to, to Muslims. I think even former President Jimmy Carter wrote uh, a piece in the New York Times uh, sort of obviously um, condemning the, the, the physical attacks, but sort of showing understanding that this was, uh, that this could lead to controversy. Uh, and then uh, this has not been the only question of, of blasphemy, if you like, um, where uh, people have been targeted for uh, allegedly blasphemy against Islam. There was also the Danish cartoon affair in 2005, and then the, the attack on Charlie Hebdo in, in 2015, and, and numerous other attacks. And uh, what we saw with the Danish cartoon affair and, and Charlie Hebdo was that a lot of people in the West suddenly became sort of saw um, allegedly uh, um, blasphemous cartoons as sort of punching down on vulnerable minority as as as, as racism of a kind, and then uh, would not stand up for free speech. Um, I think, though, that the reaction towards the latest attack on Salman Rushdie, uh, I think, has been almost universal condemnation uh, of the attack and uh, and and almost universal. Support for Salman Rushdie in the in in the West, uh, in, in in democratic open societies in in the West, uh, I should say. Um, so that at least might be something good that has come out for uh, of of this. That there seems to have be fewer sort of cracks in the support for 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 the right to publish things, even if they're deemed offensive to religious believers. And as a lot of our listeners may know, the incident has raised broader questions about what is possible for the state restriction of free speech. And before we get into that, Jacob, I wanted to ask you, what do we mean when a lot of us say free speech? What does that actually entail? Um, yeah, that's a good question because it means um, a lot of different things to different people. So my organization um, at the Future of Free Speech, last year we did a a survey on attitudes towards free speech in, in 33 countries around the world. And if you ask people around the world in the abstract whether they think free speech is, is, is important or very important even, you, you, I think it's something like 94% will say, yes, it's, 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 it's a really important value. Um, 
And so if you only look at that abstract support, you might say, well, free speech uh, is universally um, applauded around the world. Everyone is in favor of it. But then when you um, ask people uh, whether free speech should also protect supposedly uh, statements that are supposedly uh, that supposedly um, endanger uh, clash, clashing values, whether it's uh, uh, saying things that are offensive to religion, saying things that are offensive to minorities, desecrating national symbols, uh, uh, national security, and so on, you see huge differences um, between countries around the world. And, and also uh, sometimes within uh, various countries. United States, for instance, you see um, uh, a sort of partisan split about, you know, what what's the proper role and, uh, and sphere of the First Amendment. Um, um, so, so that means that that free speech is a, is a very complicated uh, issue. And, and, and while everyone likes to throw out free speech, it doesn't mean the same thing to, 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 to everyone. Um, but it might be good to go back to the roots of free speech, which we find in uh, in the ancient Athenian democracy some 2,500 years ago. And there they had two sort of overlapping concepts of free speech. One of them was isigoria, which means equality of speech, which was basically political speech where all freeborn male citizens had a direct voice on uh, political fair affairs in the ecclesia, in the assembly, um, uh, where, where uh, political decisions were made. But then they also had a broader concept called parisia, which means something like uninhibited speech, which was a cultural trait, uh, an appreciation of social dissent that permeated Athenian uh, society and which allowed citizens to speak frankly uh, about, uh, you know, about religion, about philosophy, about politics, uh, about arts. Um, and, and I think that uh, those roots, even though our modern concept of, of free speech is is different to to um, to the Athenian ones. I, I think uh, you can gain a lot from from sort of reviving these these two old ancient uh, concepts of, of free speech. And along that same vein, I've heard free speech being called, you know, the foundation of democracy. Is this a fair characterization? What makes free speech something that's so important for so many um, Western governments around the world? Yeah, I think it's inconceivable to have a meaningful democracy uh, without free speech. And so it's not a uh, coincidence that free speech originated in the Athenian democracy, even though the Athenian democracy was a direct rather than a representative uh, democracy. Um, and, and you know, just think about how, what would it mean? How could you, how could you meaningful, you know, um, have uh, have meaningful elections if you were not allowed to discuss the political issues um, uh, that that you know that uh, are being debated and that, that politicians run on. Uh, if you were not able to petition politicians to say, "Well, I, this is important to me. I want you to to do something uh, about that," or you know, if 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 citizens were not able uh, and the media were not able to hold politicians to account for for abuses or for for failing to live up to their uh, to their uh, political uh, promises. So uh, I think free speech has a number of overlapping and mutually reinforcing ju justifications 
uh, from from allowing uh, political um, uh, pluralism um, to uh, safeguarding individual freedom uh, and autonomy. Uh, these are sort of classic justifications for free speech, and I think all of them are are mutually um, reinforcing rather than mutually uh, exclusive. Uh, and and so I would say if you don't have a core protection of free speech, you can't have an open democracy. You can't have sort of a, a, a liberal democracy with where you have uh, where, where you know the the will of the majority is also restrained by individual rights, by the rule of law, or, uh, separation of powers, and and so on. And when we talk about protecting free speech um, for, for from governments, does that mean? you know, as the United States does, enshrining it in its constitution, or does it mean making laws that protect it? And if so, could you kind of give us some examples of what types of laws um, are, are so important in protecting this right? Sure. And so if we, if we go back to the Athenian democracy, it, it, it differed a lot from, say, the U.S. in the sense that it was not a constitutionally uh, protected uh, individual right. Um uh, and and you you will see that there are uh, countries that have been so if you take the United Kingdom for instance um, until they became a party to uh, the European Convention on Human Rights and incorporated that in with the Human Rights Act there was not um, a a right or legal protection as such of of free speech so it was more. Uh, part of the of, of the common law that you had, you know, you no longer had pre-publication censorship, but then there were certain laws uh, that could limit uh, free speech. So I think, in theory, at least, it's possible to have free speech even without explicit safeguards like constitutional protections. And ultimately, I think a culture of free speech is probably more important than and constitutional uh, or legal protections. But I, I think that, again, the the sweet spot is where you have a culture of free speech that underpins robust legal uh, protections, preferably uh, constitutional uh, protections that take precedence over ordinary uh, laws. But, but, you know, the First Amendment in the United States was ratified in 1791. The wording hasn't been changed but its, its scope uh, and sphere of protection has been changed dramatically over time. And for a very long time, uh, it was more of a, of, of, uh, you know, of a paper tiger. It, did, it didn't provide robust protection to, to American citizens, despite its impressive uh, wording. So, so you really have to go into sort of the late 20th century before you get some of the really strong principal protections that, that Americans enjoy and, and take for granted uh, uh, today. Um, so, so, so that shows it can be, even, even with laws in place, if you don't have, if they're not infused by a robust culture of free speech, then those laws may not uh, necessarily provide a strong protection. And before we get into maybe talking about some limitations to this right, I did want to ask you a little bit about criticisms of the importance of free speech. And two criticisms that I see very often are, one, either saying that the general public shouldn't be given access to unlimited information or shouldn't be allowed to speak completely freely on that because maybe they don't have 
the knowledge base to process it. Or maybe there needs to be some kind of filter that the information goes through. And the second one I hear a lot is that maybe like this absolute free speech furthers inequality because it allows a majority of people to quote unquote say what they want about people who might be in the margins. How how would you or people who are staunch defenders of free speech respond to these two criticisms? Yeah, so the first one is a very old uh, and ancient one. It's it's the ancient conflict between what we might call egalitarian versus elitist free speech, and and you see that in in the in sort of the differences between Athenian free speech, which was um, egalitarian um, at least by the standards of its day versus uh, the Roman conception of free speech, which was much more um, egalitarian, much more top-down, where you had an uh, enlightened elite, well-educated elite that, that, that exercised free speech on behalf of everyone else, and where, where the idea was that the unwashed mob was not sufficiently enlightened to be able to have a voice in public affairs. Yeah. And that is a, um, a conflict that is recurring, Throughout history, you know, every time the public sphere is being expanded or democratized, whether through technological developments like the printing press or, you know, the radio or the telegraph or through expanding the franchise to previously marginalized groups, whether it's, uh, you know, racial minorities, uh, religious minorities, women uh, and so on. And we see that playing out right now in the digital age where we haven't yet developed, I think, um, the, uh, the institutional, cultural, technological, and mental frameworks necessary to, to, to thrive with the, with, with the disruptions that the digital age has brought about, um, and, and where we tend to focus a lot on the, uh, on the harms uh, and take all the huge benefits of the digital age uh, for granted. The other objection um, to free speech that you mentioned is a more modern one, uh, w- which I think is born out of good intentions and genuine concerns to uh, uh, and, and a desire to wish not to repeat the past, uh, where um, minorities and persecuted groups have, have suffered. But I think it has history uh, of free speech uh, and, and the value of free speech upside down. So I would say that um, every persecuted, marginalized group has benefited from free speech, uh, whether in practice or, or principle, to stake a claim for equality and acceptance uh, and, 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 and to be able to shine a light on the gross injustices, whether, you know, it's slavery, whether it's Jim Crow, whether, uh, you know, it's discrimination against women, sexual minorities. And uh, the flip side of that is that um, every powerful group that has subjected minorities and, and groups to persecution and discrimination has relied heavily on censorship and repression. And again, slavery is a good example. Uh, in the 1830s, you saw in, in, the, in the southern states of, of the United States uh, a number of extremely draconian laws that would uh, that banned abolitionist uh, writings. Uh, in, in some states, that was even formerly the death penalty. And in southern states, in you know, after the uh, abolishment of slavery, you still had very harsh laws on what could be said. 
uh, and and you know th- that was used to try and uh, and keep black people in their place, so to speak, and and to um, to suppress. Uh, the civil rights movement and, and others who who were advocating for for racial justice. The same development you see in uh, in in, uh, in South Africa during apartheid. You saw it with British colonialism in in India and in, in in Africa and Hong Kong uh, and so on. So I think uh, even if it's this concern about free speech benefiting the powerful. Uh, and and subjugating the, the powerless, uh, even though it's born out of good intentions, I think it fundamentally misunderstands the d- dynamics involved in free speech. I would say that free speech might be the most powerful engine of human equality that, that, that human beings have ever stumbled upon. Yeah, and to delve a little bit deeper into that, I so we've talked a bit about all these benefits of free speech, but there there has undoubtedly been harm. And are there any reasonable limitations that we can place on free speech to kind of mitigate some of the potential harm? Like, for example, we've had a lot of the rise of cancel culture and a lot of misinformation, fake news. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I think the, the term free speech absolutism is also misguided. I don't know any free speech advocates who believe in absolute free speech. Um, I don't think I should have the right to threaten someone, for instance. Um, that, that, that would be uh, an important restriction on free speech and one which I th- that I think should probably be enforced more rigorously in, in, the, in our online sphere because if you make genuine threats against someone, that is a very efficient way of making them shut up. Uh, so, so that's uh, uh, th- that's one um, exception. Uh, incitement to violence uh, is another. I, I think uh, some of the rhetoric that went before the attack on uh, the Capitol on January sixth probably reached a threshold uh, of um, incitement to imminent uh, violence uh, that could have justified a. Um, a response by by authorities, um, uh, um, so so that's that's another classic uh, limitation that I think most free speech advocates would also be in favor uh, be in favor of, uh, and of course you know uh, fraud uh, stuff like that it, uh, would ne- will necessitate some kind of speech, and 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 most people will agree that you know. Uh, if, if I try to defraud you, uh, the fact that I might have done that in writing or through speech does not, uh, does not protect me from, from criminal liability. So, so, in, so in, in, there are many reasonable justifications on, on speech. What I'm particularly concerned about is what you might call uh, viewpoints. So I, I would like viewpoints even horrific ones to be uh to to have near absolute protection uh and and only when those viewpoints so so for instance i would protect even though i strongly disagree i would protect someone with uh, nazi views from 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 speaking out but if an, an a number of neo nazis gather outside a synagogue or uh you know a black church and start 
shouting, let's go get the, the Jews or, 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 you know, let's go get the blacks, then that would cross into the territory of, of incitement where I would say, okay, this is where you've, you've crossed the line. And of course, you will, you'll, you'll have a number of, of, of gray areas. It's not always possible to give a definite answer of where should the, the, the line be drawn. Um, so I acknowledge that there, there can be hard cases. When it comes to misinformation, I'm very skeptical about that. It's it's a category that has um, that that authorities have tried to crack down on from you know at least uh, the, the the Middle Ages in, in, in the terms of, of, of heresy, for instance. Uh, but also democratic governments have, have tried to crack down on it, almost 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 always with disastrous consequences for for free speech. So I don't. So even though I acknowledge that that disinformation can have harms, even though I think many of the harms that we talk about today have been greatly exaggerated, and that people are not as gullible as we we sometimes uh, think, um, uh, I think um, restricting mis and disinformation through laws uh, is a cure worse than the disease. Yeah. Thank you. And then moving like a little more to the extreme side of limitations on free speech. Um, what are some of the ways that governments today are challenging or limiting free speech? And what kind, what are, what are some of the more common ones? And then what are the ones that are a little bit more concerning? Yeah. So, I, I, you know, this really de- depends on where you are in the world. Um, but I think it's fair to say that laws against false information have, have really um mushroomed. Uh, and we've seen also a huge spike in the number of journalists that are imprisoned on charges of false news. This is mostly in illiberal and authoritarian states. But we also see um, democracies being more interesting, probing sort of the ability to to criminalize uh, or at least restrict f- false information. We've seen a law adopted in, in, uh, in France, and we've seen in the European Union a, uh, a regulation which uh, which prohibits certain state-sponsored Russian media from broadcasting within the European Union and even um, orders um, social media companies to remove content from uh, state-sponsored media uh, online. So that, that I think is, 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 is a very concerning move by the European Union because it suggests that whenever the European Union finds that there's an emergency in the future um, limiting uh, information that it deems to be propaganda or disinformation is on the table. Um, and so, you know, that could be new outbreaks of COVID or, or you know, whatever. Uh, so, so I think that's, that's really concerning. Hate speech, of course, is also um, something that is very frequently all European uh, democracies criminalize some form of, of hate speech and are under legal obligations to do so, to do so typically. Um, uh, and, and that, uh, I think, is also, um, and we also see that the, the categories protected, quote-unquote, protected by hate speech laws tend to mushroom. So gender and gender identity has, has been included. And in the United States, even though the First Amendment provides a formidable defense of free speech, we see a number of Republican states that um, have proposed or enacted laws that will restrict um, divisive concepts on gender and race and history, even in higher education. Uh, so you see that in Florida and, and a number of other states. And, and um, I'm not an expert on the First Amendment, but I would imagine that 
a number of these laws will fall afoul of the First Amendment, whereas European laws on hate speech and misinformation have more wiggle room because the free speech protections in European constitutions and European human rights law offer less robust protection than what follows under the First Amendment. And moving a little bit to the digital age, as you mentioned a little earlier, um, we know that it's ushered in some perhaps new hopes for freedom of speech. Some people have um, hoped that accessible social media platforms could provide grounds for free expression that's away from government control or government limitations. Now, have these hopes come true? (laughs) It depends on who you ask. Um, I I tend to think that uh, to a large extent they have. Um, But of course, it was always naive to think that providing a free and equal access to speak for every person basically in the world, or at least, you know, a huge portion, billions of people, uh, that that would only uh, bring about, you know, that would bring about some nirvana of uh, <laughs> of agreement and, and new enlightenment. Uh, that, that, that was bound to also include uh, disinformation and, and hatred and uh, trolling and, and 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 all the the, the these dark sides of this of social media and, and the online sphere that we're all too familiar with. Um, but I still tend to think that the, that that we take the goods, the goods, the benefits for granted, uh, and and that we we focus myopically almost on on the. On, on the dark side. This is not to say that we should ignore the dark sides. I think we should spend a lot of time and energy on how can we create a better ecosystem for uh, the digital sphere uh, with less uh, of the pathologies. Um, uh, I think that's really important for, for free speech advocates also to acknowledge the harms and, and you know, what can be done about it. But, uh, but, but, but I also think we should not lose sight of the huge benefits, uh, you know, I think, and I see that, you know, I, right, right in front of me, I have my Twitter feed and I see a journalist from the BBC uh, who monitors uh, Russian uh, media. And, and, you know, a lot of the things that are said on Russian media about the, the conflict in, um, in in Ukraine would could crush into the threshold of, of hate speech or even incitement to incitement to genocide uh, and, um, and, uh, and and of course lots of propaganda. Um, but I think it has immense worth for us to be able to see what's what's actually going on in the minds of prominent people in in uh, in, in Russia and also you know. Uh, You know, I've signed up to Telegram because I want to see what are prominent military Russian military blockers, what are they saying about uh, what's going on. I think that gives us an insight into to Russia that we wouldn't have otherwise, Uh, and and that points to to something which is sometimes ignored when it comes to free speech. When we talk about free speech, we often focus on the rights of the individual to speak or write something. And that, of course, is hugely important. But there's also a corollary, and that is the right to to hear, the right of the listener uh, to be able to access uh, information and news and opinions. Uh, And and that ability uh, is is, is undermined when when speech-restrictive laws are 
are put in place. And ultimately, I basically think that we're we're safer if we if we know what what's going on, even if you know if if we know that some people are having dangerous ideas. Uh, that that gives us a better opportunity to try and respond rather than than using the blunt instrument of censorship. And in recent years, we've seen countries like the U.S. try to try to figure out the issue of how how they can regulate, if possible, social media po- platforms like Facebook, for example. Now, I know you've done some thinking and writing about this, and so I wanted to ask you: Is there any hope for like countries to get involved to protect in order to protect free speech on social media? Or how? What might the future of free speech on social media play out? Yeah, that's a a million dollar question. I don't think anyone has the definite answer. Um, but it's uh, certainly true that in in Europe, uh, the Digital Services Act um, um, has been ad- adopted, and which tries to sort of set up rules for um, for the online sphere, including notice and takedown regimes. Uh, where platforms have to remove uh, illegal content, um, and, and I think that's fundamentally th- that part of the Digital Services Act is is fundamentally, uh, I think, misguided, um, and I think uh, it it uh, it basically leads to to uh, that. That's what a lot of our research shows, uh, at least indicates that <clears throat> that that a lot more legal content will be removed. Uh, it will disproportionately affect uh, uh, legal content. Um, I think I, I, I probably tend toward um, working towards a solution where individual users will have more control over content and where you try to limit what is being moderated by centrally by platforms or, or states to as narrow categories as, as possible, for instance, in line with international human rights law. Now, that still is a very imperfect solution. Lots of gray zones, lots of dilemmas, uh, lots of uncertainty uh, about how that would work in practice. But I think it would at least remove, I think it, I think it would provide more clarity and I think it, it would take some of the pressure of the development where more and more groups demand that their specific uh, taboos be be uh, be off limits uh, in the online sphere. So, for instance, you could have you know um, uh, um, you could have a situation where a women's rights group uh, developed a filter that could that you yourself could toggle on and off, and that could be incorporated with with Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, and that would remove misogyny that was that was lawful but awful. Um, um, if if you experienced being confronted with misogyny uh, online, uh, but it wouldn't do so at a centralized level. So so there might be women who who have different definitions of misogyny, uh, or who say who who want to respond to misogyny, or who wants to document it. Um, uh, and the same thing could be said with anti-Semitism. You know, um, there are different definitions of anti-Semitism. Some groups say, well, criticism of Israel is uh, anti-Semitism, whereas others say, well, no, this is perfectly legitimate political uh, debate. 
And, and so you could have a filter that individual users could use that might have a more expansive definition of, of anti-Semitism, but would, which wouldn't require the platform or the government to remove uh, all um, anti-Semitism under a very broad definition. So I think that would empower individual users um, to, to make more decisions about what they want to be confronted with rather than, than centralized uh, private tech companies and governments. And now stepping back finally to look a little bit more broadly at the issue, what, what exactly does it mean to protect free speech worldwide? Like what does it mean for our listeners per se? Like what can our listeners do? And also what could larger, more powerful bodies like the US government per se do to support freedom of expression? Yeah, I think, you know, <clears throat> I think we're unfortunately going through a, a free speech recession. So if you look at data from Freedom House and from the varieties of democracies and, and, and other sort of uh, um, research efforts to map and document free speech, um, they, they point, I think, uniformly to free speech being um, in recession uh, for a period of, of more than a decade. Um, and I think it matters a lot whether democracies push for stronger protections of free speech or whether, as is currently the case, they, uh, they, they argue that free speech is a danger and that it should be restricted. So we've seen, for instance, in, um, in, 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 uh, in the 70s and 80s, um, democracies... European and, and uh, North American uh, democracies as part of the Helsinki process, for instance, actively used free speech to undermine uh, Soviet-style um, uh, communism in, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And so they argued for, for broader protections of free speech, which, which in turn empowered dissidents in these countries. Um, we also saw it with apartheid where, where Western governments used free speech uh, norms to argue uh, for uh, against apartheid and to, to empower uh, anti-apartheid uh, activists. Uh, and so we, we have a number of examples of, of best practice, if you like, where you see civil society and Western governments, uh, democratic governments, coming together to push for more robust free speech standards and the implementations of such standards that actually make a difference. But when you see what's going on now where where democracies are on the defensive, where they t see, seem to very often argue that free speech has gone too far, that it needs to be reined in, that plays into the hands of authoritarian and illiberal states that can then use laws adopted in democracies and the rhetoric um, of uh, democracies to uh, to justify their own uh, much more draconian crackdowns on on free speech, um, and I think unfortunately that's the development we're seeing right now. So what I would like to see, of course, is that democracies come to to face up to the fact that you know free speech has its harms and costs, but historically the the the, the benefits have far outweighed um, the, the harms and costs and that, you know, when you undermine free speech, you ultimately undermine uh, democracies. And so it's your goddamn duty to stand up for those principles, even if you even if they're 
sometimes being used by people who are against uh, democracy, who want to undermine democracy from within. Um, and I'd like to see civil society do more of the same. Um, but, but unfortunately, that's not where we are at this point in time. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.